Many of you may know, I think I've said it before, but in October is when I start reading through Luke chapter 1 and 2, Matthew 1 and 2. Uh, it's a practice, I don't know, I began maybe 20 years ago because the Christmas story, at best I was dismissive of it. At worst, just der derisive. Uh, didn't care because I'd heard it so much and what do I have to learn from it? And uh, the scriptures are alive and active. They shouldn't, we shouldn't allow them to become so familiar that we despise them or that's just for a little kid or I'm not interested anymore because I've got this figured out. Let's go on to something else. And so in October when I begin reading, I, I pray, Lord God, give me a different perspective. Help me see this through the eyes of one of the characters here. Is there a different thought? I don't know. And, and coming into this year, as I'm reading in Matthew, it's like, oh, the, the wise men, the magi, the visitors from the east. And and no, it was Herod that I couldn't get past. Why this guy? You know, he's, he's horrible. But the questions that kept coming to mind was, how did he get to be king of the Jews? And how did he get so goofy and wicked paranoid? And why would God allow him anywhere near leadership? I didn't really have those answers. Really don't have all the answers. But since October, as I've dug and been digging into who Herod was, it's given me a different perspective on Matthew 2. And for which I'm grateful because the story's alive and it's active and I'm, I don't know it all. Most of what we know about Herod, we learn from Josephus, the first, story, first century Jewish historian who is surprisingly candid in his assessment of many of the rulers and leaders of the time. Usually if you're that candid, you didn't live long. And uh, for whatever reason, and maybe he just didn't publish his work until after he was already dead so he could ride these things out. But in 73 BC, Herod was born. He was born to Edomite parents. His Edom, that's, they came from Esau. They lived down south around the Dead Sea it's interesting that somewhere along the line, his grandparents were converted to Judaism at the point of a sword. The followers of the Sadducees, evident, I don't know what happened. Josephus is a little fuzzy here, but his parents decided they'd rather worship, worship, follow Yahweh rather than die following whatever idol that they'd grown up with. And so then Antipater, Herod's father, grew up in a Jewish home, meaning they observed the feasts and the holidays 
and little else. They were culturally Jewish. There was no Jewish blood. There was really no careful devotion to Yahweh himself. It was just, we'll go along to get along and we'll be Jewish. His father, Herod's father, Antipater, somehow got to be close friends with Julius Caesar by virtue of his position and his wealth and his influence in and around the Hasmonean and the Edomite um, surrounding area. Herod was sent to Rome and he was raised in Rome going to Roman schools, educated there. And there's some thought that he perhaps even lived much of his young childhood life in Caesar's palace, raised alongside of his own children. He became close friends with some guy named Octavian through schooling. Octavian became Caesar Augustus. Sometimes it's just who you know. <laughs> From a young age, it was noted he was brilliant, certifiably genius, but a little off. <laughs> um, but so much potential. In 47 BC, because of the influence of his father, because knowing Julius Caesar personally, because he knew his children, because he knew the right people in Rome, he was granted the governorship of Galilee. And he promptly went to work and he raised the taxes ridiculously high because he was going to ingratiate himself to Rome. And what's more, he began to clean up the countryside and round up the thieves and the robbers, and the revolutionaries. And he did very well. Three years later, Julius Caesar's assassinated. And Herod's father, because he's close to Julius Caesar, he himself is poisoned. Trying to eliminate all the close ties to Caesar. And Octavian ends up Caesar. And history records him as perhaps the best Roman Caesar that there was throughout history. Very capable and careful leader. In 40 BC, after some bumps in the road, Herod finds himself back in Rome begging Octavian, Caesar Augustus, for mercy, for past wrongs he has committed. The Roman Senate appoints him Herod Tetrarch, king of the Jews. Not just governor of Galilee, but now he is king of the Jews, of Jerusalem, of Judea, and Galilee. And he goes back and he promptly proceeds to solidify his place and to wipe out all opposition, executing 13,000 people, political enemies, over the next few weeks. And when the Sanhedrin, if you remember from Jesus' time, the, the, the 
religious rulers of the Jewish people, the Sanhedrin brought charges against him for his violence. And they learned quickly that they were not immune to it either. And 46 members of the Sanhedrin were executed as well, mostly Pharisees. He marries Miriam, a Hasmonean princess trying to solidify power down in his, where his family is traditionally from. She bears him two sons. He goes to the Sadducees, does some arm twisting, goes to the old Chaldean Empire and finds the Parthians, the, the Magi, those that were known for, you know, if they gave their blessing to be a king or a ruler, people from all around went to see them to confirm their choices. And he used their arm twisting and their influence to appoint his brother-in-law, the Edomite, as high priest in the temple. And there's nothing about that that you can find lines up with scripture or Jewish law or tradition. But the Sadducees went along with it because it was easier than ending up like 46 of their Pharisee brothers. And thus ended any spiritual line to the priesthood in Israel. It became a political appointment. After he'd established himself, he begins to feel some pressure from his brother-in-law that was appointed priest. And so his brother-in-law, Aristobulus, I'm sure you'll all remember that next week. Uh, well, there was an accidental drowning in the palace swimming pool. Or not. He was found drowned. Short time later, his mother-in-law, Miriam's mother, <laughs> she made some noise about her son drowning in the palace pool and, well, she was publicly executed. And then his favorite wife, and history records, he seemed to truly love her, so much so that he had her executed for making noise about her brother and her mother being executed. And then his two favorite sons. <laughs> he had them executed as well. Merry Christmas. He, he was something else. <laughs> you fill in the adjective. It probably applies. He dies in 4 BC. Now before we get all up in knots, well, if Jesus was born in zero or one, because that's when the calendar started, the calendar was put together like a thousand years after all of this, and they missed a few years somewhere in the process. And so let's not get caught up in the dates here per se. We just know that Jesus wasn't born in year zero by our calendar. Caesar Augustus, Octavian, a close personal friend, childhood friend of Herod, was quoted as saying, it's better to be a pig in Herod's household than one of his own sons. Because no Jew would ever kill a pig in his own home. 
Now, Herod was no Jew. That rankled the Jewish people. But according to Rome, uh, by all accounts, he's more Jewish than we are. And he relished the title and he clung to that title. And so if you turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. As we read this, and I just gave you the thumbnail sketch, you'd all be asleep in another five minutes. Not all of us are the history nerd. Jory might hang with me. Other than that, the rest of you'd be cutting Z's. So let's go to Matthew 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now just a snapshot here, the magi, the wise men from the east, this is the same group that Herod had gone to and twisted arms and bought off in order to get his brother-in-law appointed priest some 30 years earlier. In all likelihood, they're Parthians. means nothing to us. At this point in history, the Parthians and Rome are in active warfare. Rome is trying to take over the territory that these guys live in. And they're so far unsuccessful. These guys, I think we tend to try to shine, shine a rotten apple, I'll put it that way, in describing the wise men. At best, they were astronomers, more likely astrologers, trying to tell the future by looking at the stars. They were sorcerers. They were magicians. They practiced black magic. Much of what they did was, we would call it, of the occult. They were alchemists. They're going to create gold from whatever they can find. Not exactly the folks you would expect to come and worship the future Lord and Savior. And what's more, when they show up in Jerusalem, it's not three guys in big funny hats and a couple camels. There's probably several hundred of them in the party with armed guards. And they show up in Jerusalem And when Herod the king heard of this, verse 3, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. Why was Herod troubled? These are the sworn enemies of Rome. Are they coming here to announce the fact that, well, we're going to attack you? Get ready. Are they coming here to try to form an alliance and put me at odds with Rome in which, well, that's not going to work either. My position with Caesar Augustus is already somewhat tenuous. What 
what exactly is going on here. And when it says all of Jerusalem is troubled, knowing Herod's penchant for violence and murder, when he is troubled, people die. All of Jerusalem was troubled. It's kind of like the community we live in. I have a flat tire coming into church, and the time I get here, I'm hearing all about it. You know, word travels fast. Word was getting around Jerusalem, and folks were nervous. And Herod, verse 4, assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Obviously, he wasn't a devout Jew. He would have had a much better understanding. He wouldn't have had to call these guys together and say, uh, what am I supposed to know here? They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now I know. So then Herod goes back to the Magi. He says, hey, this is where he's supposed to be born. And in verse 7 and 8, Herod summoned the wise men secretly. So now they get their little counsel, not a lot of witnesses. We're going to keep this quiet. And he ascertained from them what time they began following the star. So when did you first see this star and when did you start out? We find out a little later in the chapter that it was around two years earlier. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for this child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship. Sure thing, king. We skip down to verse 13. Now when the Magi had departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and he said, rise Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod, 4 B.C. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious. I just think that's funny. Herod, he's certifiably genius, had been tricked by the wise men. Um, is it irony? Is it Jim will catch it, right? <laughs> Having been tricked by the wise men, he sent and killed all the male children of Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under. According to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. It's Jeremiah chapter 31. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more.
Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus flee to Egypt. The wise men do not go back up to Jerusalem. They just head out as quietly as a group like that can head out. And Herod sends in his soldiers to murder every child under the age of two. If you had grown up in that time under the rule of Herod, it would not be a surprising thing. It would still be shocking, but having lived through his abuses, well, here we go again. As I've thought about this for the last few months and trying to get something other than he's just a really bad guy out of this, I don't think these things are unique or special or especially insightful, but it's what has kept coming to mind. It's what I've kept coming back to. And that even a horrible, no good, very bad ruler is appointed by God to fulfill his work and his plan. The book of Matthew was written with a Jewish reader in mind. And as you read through the book of Matthew over and over and over and over again, you find as it was written, it was fulfilled in Jesus. And even here, we see Matthew pointing back to the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. And even in this horrible, violent event that takes place at the hand of Herod in Bethlehem, we see this points to the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. He is the, oh, what does it say there when the consolation of Israel. He was the prophesied one. And even this points to that fact. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. Daniel 2.20 and 21, blessed is the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings. He sets up kings. In Romans 13, if you really want to squirm and be convicted about how you speak about national leaders, it's there for you this afternoon. Our leaders, our rulers, those who are in authority over us are placed, are appointed by God. That doesn't mean that they have free reign, and they don't have to answer for the wickedness that they put out, that they put on others. But they're used by God, regardless of the fact whether they would ever realize it or stop to think about it. 
Second thing that's been rattling around in my head concerning Herod is that pride and anger and bitterness, well, none of us is immune to it. I'm just as capable. I may not have the means or the ability to carry things out as far as what Herod could do, but I'm not immune to it. My pride, my anger, the bitterness I allow to grow in me is just as destructive to myself, to those close to me, as it was in Herod. It corrupts us all if we don't own it, repent of it, confess them as sin, and then take them captive to the glory of God the Father by his grace, by his work in us. And then finally, Isaiah 45, 23, we read it first there. Paul finds it so powerful, he quotes it in Romans 14, 11, and again, Philippians 2, 10, and 11, but you could have told me that because we just got done in Philippians. Right, Aaron? So we'll, we all remember that. But we read there that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. In Isaiah, we read that every knee will bow and every tongue swear allegiance. That's interesting. As the wise men laughed and went to Bethlehem and found Jesus, they bent the knee. Herod had no such intention. We have the opportunity to do that in this life. Or we will be made to do it at judgment. There are no exceptions. Everyone will bend the knee before Jesus and confess him as Lord. It will either be an act of worship or it will be in response to eternal judgment. Acknowledging the fact that I chose poorly. So this morning, I would ask the question, where are you? Have you done that? Have you come to that point where you realize that yeah, I, I can't do this? I am a sinner. And you've bent your knee at the cross, surrendering your life, confessing your sin, Swearing your allegiance to Jesus. The one who redeemed us with his once for all work. Throughout the Old Testament, we find it usually in the prophets. 
But then in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2, we read, Behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. I heard it from Donnie first. When's the best time to plant a tree? Anybody been through Splash? 15 years ago is the best time to plant a tree. When's the second best time? Today. Oh, I should have done this 15 years ago. Yeah, probably. Do it today. There is no better day. As we wrap up the service, we're going to welcome new members. Matt is going to do that. But I want you to know this. Ted Haug and Brad Wadle, and I see Tim here, and even Donnie's up there. He'd be more than willing to stick around. And Matt Magnus, and I see Paul Brown here. Myself. If you've never done that, come see one of us. If you don't want to see one of us, look down the row. If you know somebody's been coming to church here for a while, ask them about it. Behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.